Well, good morning, everyone. As Pastor Michael has said, my name is Will, and I currently serve at uh, New Life Press down in Orange County. And uh, not really much more to say other than the introduction that Pastor Michael uh, has given. Uh, I'm glad that from what he has told me that everyone has been safe for those families who have been affected by the recent fires. It was a in some ways, uh, a disappointment that wasn't able to meet more of you uh, personally, to shake your hand and to uh, get to know other brothers and sisters within Southern California. Also, it's not a, I was telling Pastor Mike that, you know, it was, I was really looking forward just to hanging out with him and continuing to, to get to know him. Uh, Pastor Michael is someone who I've heard about actually before I physically got a chance to greet him and meet him and to even partner and to learn from him. Uh, his reputation does precede him. He seems to be a wonderful pastor, just a very bright and gifted, uh, intentional pastor who could teach and to lead, think organizationally, and really loves his church and has such a big vision for the kingdom with respect to All Nations Church. And so I'm thankful to be here with you all. Thank you for being gracious and allowing me to worship with you and to share God's word with you here today. Um, all Nations Church seems to be a vibrant, gospel-centered, kingdom-oriented church, and I'm so glad that you exist and that we can at least partner together as brothers and sisters, as like-minded churches who have been united together in, in Jesus Christ. And so I'm excited to share God's word with you all here today. So let me read the passage for us, and then we'll get right into it. As you probably know from the bulletin, I'll be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. And if you have grown up in the church, this is a well-known passage that many people quote. And if you've never grown up the church, glad that you're here. If you're trying to figure out who Jesus is, this is one of the key passages of what Christianity has to offer for you. And so let's read this together and then we'll get right into the message. But this is God's word for us here today. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Starting with verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is God's word for us here today. Friends, it probably wouldn't take much for me to convince you that we live in a busy world, and this past weekend with the unexpected fires may be a recent example of why life seems so busy and oftentimes is unexpected. It's a reminder, actually, that God is in control and that we are somewhat creaturely and finite, dependent, in some ways helpless. We're really educated and accomplished. Westerners like you and I are not really accustomed to hearing that we're not as competent and helpless as we like to think we are or the reality is. But we live in a busy culture. I read once a story of a woman who came to America from a foreign country, a different culture, and as she began to pick up a little bit of the Western American vernacular, she started introducing herself as busy. And she used to say, hi, I'm busy. And the reason was because every time she met someone, a Westerner, an American, they always responded to her and said, hello, nice to meet you, I'm busy. 
So she thought it was a common, individualistic, Western approach to introducing herself. I'm busy. And I wonder, actually, if this is something good or bad. We pride ourselves on being accomplished and efficient, productive, that we want to establish our identity and a sense of self through what we can accomplish, whether that's academics, whether that's money, relationships, personality, and network. All these things, friends, are in and of itself good, but sometimes I wonder if we need to press the brakes literally on our lives to consider, is this busyness of our lives not all great for us, especially spiritually? And that's what I want to talk about here today, because I wonder what the busyness of our lives and hearts, what kind of impact that can have on our spiritual lives, on our self-image, our self-understanding, our relationships, in fact, both families, if you're married, but also our our friendships, our community here at church, this busyness. And so when you look at this passage, in the midst of a busy world, in the midst of a busy life and a heart, we often lose sight of what Jesus offers us here in these verses, which is essentially rest. That's the one thing that Jesus climactically in this Gospel of Matthew offers you and I here today. This deep, resourceful, refreshing, life-giving rest. That's exactly what Jesus says, I can give you, that you can't find in the same way or quality anywhere else in this world. And so I want to consider you and I this idea and this concept, this doctrine of spiritual rest. So three things that I want to look at in this passage that Jesus shows us. First, he assumes and he says, we all need rest. Doesn't matter ethnicity, your generation, doesn't matter your culture, it doesn't matter where you live, at what time period, or what part of the world. Jesus assumes if you are a human, you are built to rest. And he makes his claim that we all desperately need this in order to make life work. Secondly, he says, Jesus says, I can give you rest that you can't find anywhere else in this world. So one, we need rest. Secondly, I'll give you deep spiritual gospel rest. And then three, I want to end on a couple of applications and implications for your rest here today. Both physical rest and sleep, but more deeply, the spiritual rest to find identity in Jesus. And so let's look at this together. The first point we'll see here is that Jesus tells us that we all need rest. Now this passage is broken up very simply. In verses 25 to 27, Jesus gives us his identity. And then verses 28 to 30, Jesus gives us rest. In other words, Matthew writes this gospel, this part, verses 25 to 30, very succinctly, 25 to 7, who Jesus is, 28 to 30, what Jesus gives. And basically, Matthew does this because he's tying these two realities together and says, if you couldn't understand who Jesus is, then you could understand the profound impact of what he gives in rest. In other words, Jesus is the Son of God. He is unique in that status. He knows the Father and has a unique relationship with God the Father. And because of this, he says, I will give you a rest that you can't find anywhere else in this world. Because I'm the only one who knows God the way that I do. I have the unique status of being the Son of God. And I have a unique relationship that only God knows me and I know God. Therefore, I can give you a rest. And in verse 28, he tells us why we all need this. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Labor and heavy laden. He assumes the world, all humans, labor and are heavy laden. 
We all need rest, friends, because at the end of the day, Jesus says we all work. And we all have this heavy laden, this heavy burden, whether that be a sick family member, whether this tension to get married, whether this sort of struggle to be financially successful, whether it's trying to prove yourself in the midst of difficulty, whether it's natural disaster like we just experienced here in the past weekend with the fires, there's a burden that we feel and there's work that we need to be done. And Jesus says, that's why everyone needs rest. So friends, on this first point, I want to labor literally on this phrase, labor and heavy laden, and to talk about what that really means for you. That phrase, labor and heavy laden, are words that Jesus uses, not just here, but also back in um, looking ahead to Matthew 23, 4. And he's conversing with the Pharisees, and he says to the people and the disciples watching this conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and says, don't be like the Pharisees in their religiosity. In other words, don't approach God with this kind of approach and this conceptual ideal where you could approach God with being labored heavy laden. That's what Jesus says. That's a very particular intentional phrase. Jesus says even in your religious life, even in your worship, even in your religiosity, you can be labored heavy laden, which Jesus means don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a legalist. Don't think in other words that you can approach God by meriting and earning and working towards favor and approval, because it takes completely away from grace. And Jesus says, spiritually, that's a heavy burden. It'll run you into the ground. That life is led in such a way that you can perform and that you can earn and that you can merit and establish yourself and says, the more I do, the more God loves me. The more good I do, the better God treats me. And Jesus says, that's legalism. That's labor and heavy laden. Don't approach God that way. Don't approach religion in that way because it's burdensome. And he's basically saying in this phrase in 23.4, he's saying, you can't through your performance and ritualistic efforts make yourself right with God. You can't make yourself more acceptable and approved, more lovable through your performance. And in friends, it's true not just in religion but also in life all around us. Labor and heavy laden, heavy burden, means ultimately you can't establish your identity, your sense of self, your worth. You can't cultivate your innate sense of dignity through your accomplishments and achievements. Now, friends, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You can be proud that you are you know, successful. You could be, feel good about yourself, that you have a wonderful family, or that you're smart, or that you're athletic, or that you're gifted with the ability to network because you're savvy. Jesus never says your giftedness and those realities are bad. What Jesus is talking about is that those accomplishments and qualities are never the ultimate, ultimate basis of your identity. So yes, be proud of your accomplishments and achievements. That comes from God. But they are never designed to be your ultimate identity because they can't sustain the transcendent weight of your identity and your apocalyptic approach to finding your sense of worth in your accomplishments. It's true in all of life as well. Jesus says don't live like that. You'll be tired and burdened. It's, late, it's laborious. It's heavy laden, heavy burdens. Don't live life like that because on the one hand, you'll become prideful. Look how good I am. Or the other hand, you'll become depressed. Look how bad I am. Everyone's better than me. You'll compare yourself into the ground because at the heart of legalism, those works-oriented, self-righteous approach to life is really a philosophy that says, I can make myself better, better liked, and a better person through my performance. 
I can be a somebody through my accomplishments. I can prove how good I am to others through what I do. That's labor and heavy burden. That's why Jesus says, come to me all who labor and heavy laden. He assumes every one of you in your brokenness and sin are like this. Find your establish your identity through straight A's, a good major, the college you get into, you know, into the grad school. We all labor and are heavy burdened in this way. And Jesus says, that's why you need rest to find identity in me, to find rest in me, to find refreshment and a resource in me that I can give you what you so desperately try to scrape for in this world but will fail to achieve. In an article I once read in the Huffington Post entitled, Why Are We So Busy?, This is what the author said, and these are just in a non-Christian common grace perspective. This is what the article says. Americans work 50% more than the Germans, 50% more than the French, and 50% more than the Italians. In fact, Harvard economists have compared the working hours and life satisfaction of Americans to Europeans. And according to these economists, they have concluded that Europeans Work to live, it's a means to an end, but Americans live to work. We find our identity in work. And that Europeans actually, actually <clears throat> value the process of work more than Americans because Americans are more concerned with the outcome of work, success, money, identity. And the author concludes, sometimes I feel as if people base their happiness on their busyness. There's a feeling of insecurity that comes when In your spare time, you're not doing enough. And you think, all my friends are busier and they're movers and shakers and they're doing something important and I'm sitting here with nothing to do. And you think happiness is built on busyness or significance is built on productivity. Why are all my friends busier than me? Friends, in other words, do you feel that not doing something makes you a nobody or that doing everything makes you a somebody? The author of this article is exactly what Jesus is saying. That's a labor and heavy burden approach to life. It's not just Christians that think that, but also non-Christians. Also the Huffington Post, also Harvard economists. Americans find their identity in their busyness, in their productivity. And the question philosophically, even for this article and these people, is that will it give you ultimate sense of worth and identity? What Jesus is getting out, friends, here is that a busy life in a busy world ultimately comes from a busy heart. At my church, at least, and sometimes even in myself, I think that actually the busiest moment of somebody's day oftentimes comes when they're lying in bed sleepless at night because their mind and hearts are running a thousand miles a minute, thinking about all the details, stressing out, daydreaming about what they wish they could have been, regrets of their past decisions in life because they could have been more successful. They need to be busier. This is why so many of us are so angry and restless. This is why we snap at our kids, get angry at our friends, are frustrated and disgruntled people. Even in sunny sunny California, it's amazing when I first moved out here in 2011, people out here also get annoyed and frustrated. It's not just the East Coast people who have to deal with snow. But I wonder about this. Many of us try to do 10 different things at once, but in reality never get one thing done because we just want to be busy. We think we're important. We want to build ourselves up. We're working ultimately not to serve and love people, but to serve and love ourselves, labor and heavy burden. This makes us spiritually and physically tired. That's why every one of us, to some degree, needs what Jesus says, rest in him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And this brings us to our second point. 
Jesus gives us rest. In verses 25 to 27, we have some of the most profound and beautiful verses about Jesus. In fact, one commentator says, one scholar says, this is the Christological high point of Matthew's gospel. No, that's amazing because 28 is the famous Great Commission. Lo and behold, I give you rest. I'll be with you always. Go disciple the nations. But this is the Christological high point of Matthew's gospel because Jesus claims a once-for-all unique status as a son of God with respect to the Father. He has a unique one-of-a-kind position and posture with God. In fact, commentators will note that these verses have a lot of parallels with Jesus with this with Jewish wisdom literature. There's this guy, if you don't know, called Jesus Ben Sira, just a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish teacher. He collected all these Jewish wisdom literature sayings, not in the Bible, but just in Jewish culture and religion. He collected all these sayings, this guy, Jesus Ben Sira. And he says, I found true wisdom. And he goes around and he teaches and says, I found wisdom, the key to life. And he says, you want to make life cohere and harmonize? Then take on the yoke. Take this yoke on of wisdom. I'll teach you. That's why Matthew, whose audience primarily is Jewish, he's writing this gospel to bust up their worldview. He's saying, you listen to Jesus Bensiro, who has a collection of human wisdom sayings, I got the key to life, take on this yoke, follow the teaching. That's why he writes this gospel and he inserts Jesus and Jesus has found true wisdom. He's busting up the worldview of Old Testament Jewish religiosity, this labor and heavy intensive burden. Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish, and Jesus says, I have this unique status. Jesus says, I'm not a messenger of wisdom. I am wisdom in myself. Jesus says, I'm not going to put on the yoke of wisdom. I'm going to give you my yoke, which is true wisdom. That is what Matthew is trying to get at. Here's the point, friends. After Jesus gives this identity in verses 25 to 27, I'm the true wisdom, take on my yoke. What's the first thing that Jesus wants us to know and to apply? The first thing. Christological high point. Think about it for a moment with me. Christological high point, which means that this is the clearest, most profound picture of who Jesus is. And Jesus turns to the disciples. And what's the first thing that Jesus says that the disciples need? He doesn't say you need power to take over the world. You need intelligence in order to be successful. You need political and economic might. He doesn't say you need the ability to be savvy and to network. He doesn't say that you actually got to be a, an investor to make a lot of money. All good things in themselves. Jesus says, I have unique status of God the Father. No one knows the Father except me. No one knows me except the Father and who I choose to reveal this to. Unique status. And then he turns to the disciples. I am so important unique. This is the first thing you got to know. You need rest. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say anything else. Rest. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and whom the Son chooses to reveal. They had the same knowledge and same status. And the first thing Jesus says to the people, you need rest. And when Jesus says, only the people I choose get to know you, it sounds exclusive, it sounds elitist, and non-Christians will critique us about that. You're so elitist. You think you corner the market on doctrine and morality. And they have a point. You know, a lot of oftentimes we're very like, prideful and arrogant. But actually, Jesus says, I know you, God. You know me. And only the people I choose get to know you. And who does Jesus choose in verse 28? Come to me all. His heart is for everyone to come to him. 
Christians and non-Christians, here he wants everyone, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. That's Jesus' heart for you and I here today. Father, you only know me and I only know you. And then he gives this open invite for everyone to find rest in him. That means rest is something so important that only Jesus, uniquely as the Son of God, can give. That means in the busyness of this world and the restlessness of your heart, we need to come to Jesus. He gives us an open invite. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, labor and heavy burden. I will give you rest, he says. Almost every other instance in the Gospels when Jesus talks to his disciples, he usually says almost every other time, come after me or come follow me. You know, it comes over to the first disciples who are fishermen. No, come follow me. Take up your cross. Come follow me. Come after me. Here's the only time that Jesus explicitly says to the disciples, come to me. Because rest is a person. First and foremost, Jesus says, I'll give you rest because I'm resting myself. It's a whole theological doctrine that we can unpack from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis, what did God do after he created the world in six days? He rested to show the model and the pattern of all humanity. The goal of creation actually is Sabbath rest. The word Sabbath means rest. We're here on Sunday to rest. The goal of heaven is going to be eternal rest. Jesus says, in this world until I come back, you can get a taste of that heavenly glorious rest in my union with you. My spirit dwells within you. You can taste this. Rest is a person. And to make this emphatic, in verse 29 he says, You will find rest for your souls, where souls is sometimes translated as life, but it's also where we get the word psyche, but basically means rest on the deepest level of your existence. This is why, friends, before we go into some practical applications, it says that in this world, in our idolatry, we work so hard and are busy because we try to establish a labored, heavy burden identity. No accomplishments, Money, it's like I keep saying, relationships. You know, Tim Keller is wonderful in this and his counterfeit gods, the three major areas of idolatry, love, money, power, success. So we are built in our brokenness and our sin. We have been built in such a way that we find in our idolatrous heart our identities in these things, that we want to be someone who is purposeful, intentional, successful, accomplished, and rich. And this is what happens usually. If you try to find your identity in your accomplishments, whatever that is for you, On the one hand, either you'll get puffed up in your head and be prideful. Look how good I am. I'm better than these people. I went to better schools, more accomplished. Look how good-looking I am. Look how attractive I am, how charismatic and dynamic I am, how gifted I am. It comes in such a variety of different ways. One way is that your head will get puffed up and prideful. The other way, actually, is that you're going to be your head will not become puffed up, but all the air will be pushed out. You'll be depressed. You'll be frustrated. You'll have, low, look at me, no, woe is me, no one, no one loves me, I'm not really good enough. So on the one hand, your head gets puffed up, on the other hand, it gets deflated. On the one hand, you'll be puffed up and you criticize and you condemn and you think you're better, you get frustrated, you think you're elitist. On the other hand, if you compare it because you build your life on identity through accomplishments, then you'll feel depressed and you'll feel inadequate and you'll feel self-loathing because both approaches essentially are self-concentrated. On the one hand, you're comparing yourself to people who are worse than you. On the other hand, you're comparing yourself to people who you think are better. And that's why you'll go through this life frustrated, comparing yourself in your identity. You'll go through these ups and downs, become inflated in your head and deflated, being overly 
an overly estimated approach to your life and your significance and an underestimated approach to your life. There's in one sense that you overestimate your abilities and the other sense that you underestimate your abilities. And that leads to a life that goes like this. But when you come to Jesus, for the first time, you could say the things that you find in this world, you could find in Jesus and his work for you. I will give you rest. He performed the Ten Commandments perfectly. He has given you this identity. He has clothed you in his righteousness in the robes of white. He has given you a purpose and significance. He gives you a revolution, a purpose, and a vision for your life and everything that you desire, that you want to find ultimately in this world but will fail, Jesus has given to you in him so you could rest. And you know what happens if you could really find your identity in him? You become more gracious, more loving. You could take criticisms much better. You're not so restless. You're not so up and down in your emotions. It's not as if you're happy at one moment and angry at the next. You can take and absorb the sins and adequacies of people around you. That's what it means to find rest in Jesus. You feel good about yourself because at the end of the day, you feel good about who Jesus is for you. I will give you rest. That's Jesus' claim. Nothing else in this world can claim what Jesus does. No other religion or philosophical system can give you what Jesus gives here. That is what Jesus says. That's the claim of Christianity for whether you've been growing up in the church and start doubt Christianity, never been to church, that's the claim. And the challenge is here, come to Jesus and test him out. I have full confidence that he'll win that debate. Test it out. Turn to him, repent of your sins, learn more about him, grow in him. Test it out if you doubt his claim. I'll give you something that anything this world can never offer you. This leads us to our last point. Let's try to test this out a little bit. A couple applications here about how to physically rest and spiritually as well. Sort of a diagnosis, but this will be kind of a practical diagnosis for you. In 29 to 30, Jesus says this. How to rest that Jesus says, take on my yoke. In 29 and 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now here, friends, when Jesus uses this metaphor for yoke, there are two types of yokes. There's an animal yoke and a human one. Most people think of an animal yoke that we have to take on a yoke like an ox or cattle. I think Jesus is probably talking about a human yoke. Humans back then also used yokes to lessen the burden. They used a yoke to pull heavy objects. I think Jesus is using that metaphor of a human yoke to say that my yoke is going to be lighter than the world's. My life, your life will be easier to carry the burdens if you take on Jesus' yoke rather than the yoke of the world. And the difference, friends, is this. is not necessarily that the two yokes of Jesus and the world are different. They're the same. But Jesus is saying the key is who is the master of those yokes. The yokes are the same, but you have the world's and its labor heavy laden, or you have the yoke of Jesus, whose master is obviously the Savior. And he's saying, my yoke is going to be easier for you. We are all wearing a yoke, friends. We're all wearing something to make life better, easier, to carry the burdens of our lives. And Jesus says, the question is, whose yoke are you wearing? The world's or Jesus? Are you looking to yourself or to your resources, your accomplishments to make life work and cohere? Are you wearing the yoke of Jesus who's done all the work that you can rest in him? Are you wearing Jesus' yoke and following and learning from who Jesus is because his yoke is light and easy? He's done all the work for you on the cross so you could rest in him. 
He has given his life to you so you can rest in him. If you fail and you sin, Jesus says he'll forgive you. If you need significance, he has given you that in his spirit. If you want a vision for your life, what greater vision is that, that Jesus came to heal the world, and you're now part of that mission as an ambassador of Christ. Jesus says, I have given you rest. And these are things that you can think about, a few suggestions. First, friends, the word for rest in here is not the word uh, for Sabbath, but a word that means physical refreshment. So I think you can at least make an application about sleep. I think it also means like a deeper refreshment because he says, I give you rest for your souls. So I'm going to try to tackle both sides. So you can talk about sleep, and you can also talk about the spiritual deeper rest that all of us need to go through. And as a caveat, I get it. You know, cultures have different approaches to sleep. You know, if you're a doctor or a pharmacist, a nurse, a policeman or fireman, I know you can't have a regular sleep pattern. So I get that. I understand this. But nevertheless, sleep is a gift. And if you're lazy here this morning, you love this point of the message. <laughs> but sleep is a gift. And this is why. I read this book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, written by Tish Warren, and she talks about in this one chapter about the necessity of sleep, and she does a beautiful job of tying that to our regular rhythm and flow of Sunday corporate worship during the week, and this is what she says. A study in the UK shows that kids need to learn how to sleep in the same way they learn to walk, run, and talk. Sleep takes practice. If rest is learned through habit and repetition, so is restlessness, and these habits of rest or restlessness can change and shape us and form us over time. She says there's a deep connection between the sleep we get at night and the rest we get each Sunday in our gathered worship. Both worship and our daily sleep profess our loves, our trusts, and proclaim our limits as human beings. Both reflect a rhythm and ritual and ultimately our dependency upon God. In fact, in our sleep, we are the most vulnerable in our lives and the most helpless because at that moment, we are not doing anything active and it reflects our trust and dependence upon the God who never sleeps and is in perfect control of our lives in this world. Our sleep in profound ways is a reminder of God's grace because while we are completely inactive, he is at work in the world and within us. He is the true mover and shaker. That's why Psalm chapter 3, verse 5 says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. A Scottish pastor, John Bally, has once said, In Christ, we always wake up better men than when we went to sleep. And friends, this is just practical application. This is Tish Warren's, and I do this all the time. She says, you know, you could go to sleep at 10 o'clock, but what do you do? No, you spend about an hour flipping through Netflix, and there's like hundreds of thousands of shows. You never pick anything. You just go to rest. <laughs> go to sleep at 10, but you end up going at 12 because you just play a game on your Clash of Clans or whatever it is for you, <laughs> playing something on your phone, and then you kind of go through social media. You could spend hours on social media. And no, don't make no mistake. Social media is beautiful. It's great. God has given this gift to really promote a lot of different aspects of this world. It makes the world smaller communication. But everything can be corrupted by our sin, and we can spend useless and countless hours at night. That's Tish Warren's application. But she makes the principle this way. What is so important in your life that you're willing to give up sleep for it? If the Bible says sleep is that important for you, that is what she says. If rest is learned through habit and repetition, so is restlessness. And these habits of rest or restlessness shape and form us over time. We are agitated. We are tired. We are, 
we're frustrated, we get angry. And this restlessness can make us so busy because by busying ourselves, we think we are bettering ourselves, this labor and heavy laden. Now, so I want you to think about this. Let's go through a counseling session, like I used to say to my church, to look at your motivational heart while you don't rest, at least the physical sleep. This is what you have to consider. I get all this from Kevin DeYoung's book, Crazy Busy. So you might as well pick up that book and read it. He offers some thoughts on what motivates people's busyness. And I can relate to probably all of these. This is what he says. What motivates your busyness? Are you a busy person? Well, I would say without knowing you, forgive me for being judgmental, you're busy because you live here in Orange County. But this is your motivation, potentially. Are you a people pleaser? We're busy trying to do too many things. We do too many things because we say yes to too many people. We say yes to too many people because we fear their disapproval. You know who are experts at this? Pastor Michael and me. More for myself. But pastors are so good at saying yes to everyone. Please don't leave our church. No, please tithe. No, please serve. So yes, I'll do anything that you want until there's like a couple hundred people and then you run yourself into the ground. Pat's on the back. I'm also an expert on this. We're busy because we live for people's praise. The difference between pats on the back and people-pleasing is that people-pleasing is motivated by fear, whereas pats on the back is motivated by praise and glory. And in my sin, I want both. I will always say yes to people in my sin because I want to build myself up. A third one, we're so busy because we overrate ourselves. We overestimate our importance, our abilities. The truth is we're not as important as we think we are or as nearly as gifted. Friends, you are uniquely you and uniquely gifted. Make no mistake about this. Your gifts are important. The church in Jesus uses your gifts. You are loved and uniquely you. But you're also replaceable. <laughs> That's what, the, even for pastors. Recently went on a sabbatical at my church, full of pride, still am, friends, so please pray for me, full of pride, full of this idolatrous finding my identity and success of church. You know, the budget's growing, the numbers are growing. It's a great problem to have. Find your identity in this, get sensitive, and I get critical. Often the people who love Jesus and are demonstrating grace better than me but we overrate ourselves. I'm not nearly as important as I would like to make myself think I am. And sometimes, by the way, social media does that because essentially it's a personal PR campaign. So I try to stay off of that a little bit, and then I just Facebook stop other people <laughs> and look at what they're doing. Another aspect is this, proving ourselves. We're restless because we still try to prove something to our parents our friends, the naysayers, and spouses. Let's be honest. How many of us want to be successful because you want to make mom and dad proud? And friends, it doesn't go away. In my church, even 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, they're still struggling. I got to make dad proud, even when they come into middle age. It's something that's profound and significant, but it makes us busy. There's also power because you have to stay in control. Prestige because you want significance. Perfectionism. I can't let go because I can't make a mistake. I have a lot of that at my church. Posting. Again, this is Kevin DeYoung posting. We're so busy posting on social media, which is essentially a personal publicity campaign. The question at the end of the day, he says, is to ask this. Are you trying to do good for the world, or are you trying to look good? That is what you have to ask yourself in the busyness. Friends, there's not a finite rule for this. At the end of the day... We, we, if we find rest in Jesus, we live out of that resource and identity so we could do a few things well for the most of us. 
So there's an approach to life that says, I'm going to do 10 things and try to do 10 things, but I do 10 things poorly to build myself an identity. Jesus has given you a perfect identity and worth. If you live out of this, you'll be able to serve and do a few things well with excellence, with the resources and strength and gifts that Jesus has given you. Let me end on this. Probably the clearest biblical picture, I think, of this busyness and rest comes in Luke chapter 10 with the story of Martha and Mary. You know the story, but if you don't, Jesus goes to one of his most comfortable households. He's built a relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He goes into there, and what does it say at the end of Luke chapter 10? It says that Mary rested at Jesus' feet, learning from him, listening to him. He's teaching. He's, draw, he's giving a theological discourse on something, and Mary's listening. Martha is distracted and busying herself, and she's doing hospitality. She's getting ready. She gets frustrated, and she says, Jesus, do you want to say something to my sister who's lazy and just listening at your feet while I'm busy doing hospitality and hosting? Friends, let me take a moment and say something. This is a legitimate concern. At least in my church and community groups, the wives resonate with Martha and say, my husbands are like Mary. Just kind of, actually, the husbands aren't even Mary. They're not learning from Jesus reading the Bible. They're just laying around. They're kind of, and I'm not, maybe the husbands here, but at my church, the beauty of this is that I could always open up the skeletons of the closet in my church because I don't have to always come back here if you don't like this. But that's my church. But you can resonate with this. Isn't this legitimate? That's not the point. There are priorities. It's not that hospitality and cleaning and cooking are bad. It's that there are priorities here and that Mary has a priority of resting at Jesus' feet. Now, one commentator notes this in Luke chapter 10. Mary and Martha, and that story comes at the end. And Luke writes his stories in such a way that they all have some sort of connection. So in Luke chapter 10, in the beginning, what is it? You have the greatest short-term mission trip ever recorded in history. Jesus sends two by two, 72 people out. The most successful short-term mission trip. And I say this because when the disciples come back, they report of people being saved. But after this successful mission trip, in verse 18, it says they saw Satan fall like lightning. That's a successful short-term mission trip. They're busy. 72, Jesus like a general sending two by two. Then after that, what do you have? The Good Samaritan where it's a story about how to sacrifice and love and to be gracious to your enemy. That's mercy ministry, something so wonderful that as Pastor Michael had just shared, that everyone can participate at 3 o'clock here today. Mercy ministry and missions, sacrificially loving your enemies. And this is the point, I think, of Luke chapter 10 when he ends with the story of rest with Mary and Martha. Rest is not ultimately laziness or inactivity. Because he's saying missions is really important. Mercy ministry is really important. Loving your neighbor is essential. The second part of the greatest commandment. But if you do all this work in ministry, but never sit at Jesus' feet, you've missed the entire point. It doesn't mean that there's a chronological priority. There's just a priority of doing this for the sake of Jesus and resting in him. Finding your identity in him, learning who you are, discovering your sin and repenting so you could rediscover the amazing grace of Jesus' blood for you. And when you find that identity, it'll push you out to missions. It'll push you out to mercy ministry. It'll help you to love one another better. You'll never compare and be inflated or compare and be deflated because you'll have the full power and ministry of Jesus' spirit for you. Rest in him. He says, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden.
Let us come to him in prayer at this time. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that we have the privilege on this Sunday that one day out of the week we find rest together in corporate worship with you because you set that pattern in Genesis as you created the world and rested on the seventh and that you have given us the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath by worshiping you together as a church family, joining the angels and the innumerable men according to the book of Hebrews that we could join in this heavenly glory to get a glimpse by faith of your majesty and your throne with clarity of your love and your power, your purposes and your plan, to see a vision for this world and life and to see how that is our vision too as we come along in this world, in this life as disciples of Jesus. May we find rest in him, our purpose and identity, our strength and resources. So Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.